Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. The delicious dialogue starts here and now, and I welcome you to my kitchen. Recipes and tips for marvelous summer meals will be shared all throughout this hour. And every Sunday, you'll gain ideas for how to eat well and live well. Because this show is for people who love to eat. And each week, I'll tell you about my favorite cocktails and wines. I'll share cutting-edge recipes. And distinguished authors, artisans, and chefs will share their knowledge. We'll also dish on the best foods and restaurants across the country, touch on health and a bit of tech and the greatest gadgets for your kitchen as well, because the next best thing to eating food is talking about it, in my opinion. You'll always find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com, where I hope you'll find scrumptious recipes that will make you a more confident cook. And you can find my daily dish on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. We are definitely starting Sunday off right because our plate is full. Coming up in just a little bit, best-selling author Ina Yaloff is stopping by. We are going to dish on the greatest culinary legends of New York City. And later in the hour, she is a butcher, a baker, a farmer, a cook, and a writer. Meredith Lee will be here, and she is waxing poetic on ethical meat. You won't want to miss the conversation. But first, I think we should talk quintessential summer for a moment, don't you think? Because summer pesto is a beautiful thing. It's true. Pesto changes everything. I love pesto. I was raised on pesto. My mom always grew pesto in pots on the patio or on the windowsill. And this is really the most wonderful time of year when the pesto begins to uh, come alive from fresh, young basil. Albeit you can make it throughout the summer, of course, and it's equally delicious. But I I happen to love to make as much pesto as possible as basil is beautiful and abundant throughout the summer months. I love pesto because it's amazing tossed with angel hair. It's great on grilled vegetables. It's perfect with poultry and seafood. It makes the ultimate marinade for lamb chops. And then it's sort of brilliant as a spread for a sandwich because it's totally picnic friendly, right? But whatever your preference, it's a really great recipe to know. Now, I do make big quantities of pesto throughout the summer. And then when winter comes along, I pull my pesto ice cubes from the freezer and I get that little taste of summer. Yes, pesto freezes quite beautifully, actually. So you'll spoon it into an ice cube tray when you have a an abundant amount from your food processor, you'll freeze it. And then once it's solid, just pop the cubes out and throw them in a Ziploc bag and seal well. And then you can either thaw them um, and use them just as you would fresh pesto, or you can throw them into a sauce frozen. And as they dissolve, they just permeate that beautiful herbaceous flavor. Now, I love the versatility of pesto because if you've never mixed pesto into chicken salad, it is so good. Or how about in a crab cake? You can bake it into bread. You can mix it with mayo. You can make a salad dressing with pesto. It really does offer a bevy of options that give you fresh 
herby flavor in just about everything. Now, the traditional Italian recipe for pesto is made with basil, pine nuts, Parmesan cheese, garlic, and olive oil. But by simply changing a few of the ingredients, you can actually jump around the globe. Like, for example, you could use equal parts of basil, cilantro, and mint, or you could use Thai basil in there. That would be delicious. And you can exchange the pine nuts for peanuts with a touch of sambal, the chili paste, or sriracha, the puree. And you would have an Asian pesto that would be brilliant on shrimp on the barbecue. Now, if you used hazelnuts instead of pine nuts and you spread that basil hazelnut pesto over a perfect roast chicken, you'd get a taste of France. Or you could substitute pecans for the pine nuts and go down south and slather a pork chop and make potato salad, and I'd be very happy coming over. (laughs) It's really true that with fresh herbs and vibrant color, you just can't lose. So when it comes to making the pretty and perfectly balanced pesto, you just need to have the formula down. So pesto has those five components that I mentioned. And once you know the method, you can play around with it. Like you can add arugula or throw in your fennel tops to use it up, as they say. And then, of course, you can get creative because if you have an overflow of one particular herb that's growing rampant in your garden, you can make parsley pesto. And I would use really good quality Parmesan, like the grandfather of Parmesan, Grana Padano, which I love, and then spread the parsley pesto on toasted sourdough with grilled mushrooms. Oh, that would be fabulous. Or you could make cilantro pesto, which would essentially simulate like a salsa verde. Or you could make a mint-based pesto and then give everything a Mediterranean kick, like orzo or lamb chops. Well, that would be delicious too. Now, you could always make it traditional though, and that is really the beautifully basic recipe for pesto. And for the ultimate summer pesto, you need a couple of cloves of garlic, a few tablespoons of toasted pine nuts, because by the way, toasting the pine nuts takes away some of the bitterness and it adds that really rich, wonderful, caramelized mouthfeel that I love. Then you need a half a cup of Parmesan cheese, a couple cups of basil leaves, and a half a cup of extra virgin olive oil. And don't worry, I'm posting the recipe right now on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. So what I do is I throw a couple of those garlic cloves into the food processor and I pulse until they're finely minced because I want the garlic to sort of infuse through the pesto so that each bite has the really beautiful complexity of flavor. Then I turn off the food processor, I add the toasted pine nuts and the Parmesan cheese, and I process that all together. Then I add a couple cups of fresh basil leaves that are loosely packed, and I turn the food processor on, and I slowly drizzle in the olive oil. Then season liberally with salt and pepper, a couple more pulses just until it's combined, and you really do have the ultimate pesto. Super simple, right? Now, if you're using it the same day, don't refrigerate it yet. There's something wonderful about pesto made fresh just last minute on beautiful pasta or slathered on anything grilled. And I love the smell of pesto when you walk past it on your way to the grill and it's on the kitchen counter and that beautiful aroma wafts with you. But if you are going to use it at a later date, you can refrigerate it for a about up to a week. And then by the way, those pesto ice cubes that I mentioned, they last about three months. 
Now, don't forget, you can mix pesto into softened butter for the very best garlic bread. You can stir it into cream for a pesto alfredo. You can mix it into your Caesar dressing. It's so scrumptious. And really, if you want your summer dishes to come alive with flavor, you just add pesto. (laughs) All right, moving on. Here is some really good food news. Although I am all about everything in moderation, and when I'm trying to, you know, be good or eat leaner or cleaner, I eat three bites of chocolate cake and I put my fork down. But I will say that I'm really excited about the fact that physicists have discovered a way to zap the fat out of chocolate. Yes, the researchers at Temple University were able to remove up to 20% of the fat by running liquid milk chocolate through an electrified sieve. And they say that the chocolate tastes pretty good. Now, previously, there have been manufacturers that have tried to lower the content in their chocolate, but they've only gotten so far. And this new method really does allow them to slash the fat. The research paper, which was published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, promises that the electric shock method leads to healthier and tastier chocolate. Okay, I'm in. (laughs) The research was funded in part by Mars, the candy company, and this electrified low-fat chocolate may be coming to a store near you soon. And I think that's really good food news. Now, don't touch your dial. There's culinary conversation galore all the way till the end of the hour. Writer Ina Yaloff stops by next to share the culinary legends of New York City. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen, and we'll be right back. This is a true culinary exploration every Sunday in your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. We all know that to eat in New York City is an experience, an experience that I love to do as much as possible, as does Ina Yeloff. She is sharing the stories of her city and the people who truly love food so much so that they dedicate themselves to it every day. In the new book release entitled Food and the City, journalist and best-selling author Ina Yaloff pens a delectable journey inside Manhattan's pulsating food scene. And she paints a vibrant picture of metropolitan food culture in this wonderful book. I am so glad that you are here, Ina, to share your prose, ladies and gentlemen. She is Ina Yaloff. Hi, Ina. Hi, Jamie, and thank you for having me. I love the introduction. Yes, of course. I love your introduction, I will say. The story of your first culinary experiences, your mother-in-law's, we should call it a quasi-kitchen, right? That's not really, it doesn't constitute a kitchen, but how you rose to fame and loving food all at the same time. Well, my mother, first of all, my mother never cooked. Right. Um... My mother kept golf balls in the refrigerator because she thought that that would make them go farther. Mm. And we just, there was never a lot of food in my house. But when I met and married my husband, who is a New Yorker and as was his mother, um, I learned from him how to eat like a New Yorker. And I learned from her 
how to cook like a New Yorker. And so you were talking about her quasi-kitchen. She had what they used to call an efficiency apartment. She had a hotel room with a little closet, <laughs> and she literally cooked dinner for 25 people in that little place. I don't know how she did it. The, the refrigerator was sitting in her bedroom with, um, I think I mentioned, contact paper with vine on it yes. so it would fit into the decor. Uh, the decor, right. And <laughs> yeah. that's, I think, for all of us, a memory, for those of us that love food, the first diehard experience that you witness sort of propels your culinary career memories and and so on I remember my mom took me to the plaza hotel the first time in New York and we had tea and that was one of the first just very illustrious memories that I have what is your first food memory of going out to eat in New York in New York um after I got married every Sunday Hmm. we went to Rappaport's or Ratner's which were down on the lower east side Um, the Jewish delicatessen where you order scrambled eggs. You say to the waiter, I like scrambled eggs, and he says to you, no, you don't want that. (laughs) You know, they yell at you. And, I mean, I had never seen anything like that. I grew up in Miami Beach. Mm. We had nothing like that. And I fell in love with those Jewish delicatessens. And to this day, when I walk into one, even though those two are closed, I inhale and I dream and I think back Mm. to those early days. I loved it. No doubt. And I was raised in a Jewish uh, household as well. And so today, where do you go? Do you go to Katz's? Do you go to Carnegie? What, What is your Jewish deli of choice? My, well, actually I live right around the corner from Zabar. (gasps) You do. Can I move in? (laughs) Do you mind? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I have two bedrooms. You're welcome. Well, thank Um, you. They, I, I literally, Jamie, mm. at the end of every day when Zabar's. I'm coming home from work or the library or whatever I'm doing, I walk into Zabar's and I inhale because mm. it has that Jewish deli smell. And yes. I told Saul Zabar, who's now 85 years old and still watching the store, I said, if I could bottle that smell, I would set up a stand outside of Zabar's and, and, and be a very rich woman. I was going to say, and make a ton of money. Tell the story of Zabar's, if you would, because your book is a, is a very delectable journey of so many wonderful stories having to do with food and our, our passion to not only produce it, but to elevate it, to continue legacies and um, and to enjoy it to its fullest potential. When I land in New York, whether I'm coming for business or pleasure, I stop at Zabar's right near your house and I get a cheese strudel. It's my first stop. I have to. I can't help myself. And Zabar's has that very long living legacy. It, it absolutely does. Um, my book, by the way, is an oral history. So I just would like to mention the fact that the people that are in the book, there's 53 of them, they are literally telling their stories. I'm the one basically going to them with the questions and the tape recorder, but I'm letting them tell their stories first person. Yes. So I had heard about Zabar's. I mean, I, everyone knew about Zabar's, but I had heard there was a man behind the counter who was the last Jewish lock slicer oh. at Zabar's. Everybody else now... Um, they are, they're mostly from Latin America, and that's what you find in all of the restaurants and all of the grocery stores, and, and, and they, thank heaven, are here and helping run these places. But Lenny Burke 
at age 65 was an accountant making $250 an hour, he said, and he decided that he was bored with what he did and he wanted to do something else. So he retired, and one day a friend called him up and said to him, there's an ad in the paper that Zabar's is looking for a lock slicer. And Lenny said, hmm, I can lock. Every, any, anyone can slice locks. So he went into Saul Zabar, and he said, I would like to apply for the job as a lock slicer. I think maybe he was 68 years old or something like that. And Saul Zabar said to him, are you kidding me? You, you were an accountant. Why in the world would you want to be a lock slicer? He said it would be something interesting for me to do. And so Saul gave him a chance. But his, his great story was the story of a woman who came in every day and, or every, once a week, um, an older woman, and said to him, um, you can slice my locks, but I do not want salty. And he said, okay. And she kept saying, I don't want salty. Don't give me salty. And after about two months, she never had to say anything, but she would wait in line for Lenny to slice her locks. And then one day, her aide came in without her, and he said, is she okay? He had no idea who she was, and the aide said, yes, but she's outside in her wheelchair, and you know who that is, and he said, no. She said, that's Woody Allen's mother. Oh, my gosh. So, Amazing and stories. He, yeah, and he's still there, and he's, he's like one of the stars of the book, and everybody is so thrilled to go in and wave, you know, yes. hi, Eleni. I, I read about you, Lenny. Right, to know, to know the backstory. There are, there are old and new stories that you uh, document in the book, in the oral history. And by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're late because the book is called Food and the City, and it is the newest release from Ina Yaloff, and it is a phenomenal read for any food lover. Um, but more current, um, Zabar's having a long legacy. The cronut was invented in New York City. Dominique Ansel has graced this show, Ina, like you. Um, and you went behind the scenes with him. And that really is another fascinating discovery in the food world. Dominique Ansel was the pastry chef at Daniel. And he's from France. He's a Frenchman. And he decided to strike out on his own. He opened up his own bakery, never knowing if he was going to be successful or not. I think they were maybe a few weeks into the bakery. This is May of 2013. Mm -hmm. And he this, some, someone, one of his staff said, why don't we try donuts? And he said, they don't make donuts in France. And the staff member said, what do they make? He said, they make croissants. So they decided to do a mashup of a donut and a croissant, and they came out with what they called a cronut. A man from from Grub Street, which is New York Magazine's blog, right. came in like two days later, said to him, what's new? He showed him the cronut. They photographed it. He tasted it. He wrote about it. Hmm. And the next morning, there were 50 people lined up outside the bakery right. to buy a cronut. And the following morning, there were literally 100. New York's professional chefs, restaurateurs, line cooks, street vendors, and purveyors talk about what they do and why they do it, from old schoolers to the new kids on the block. She captures and documents the stories of passion and motivation and hardship and resilience, and it is wonderful woven tales that showcase the unwavering spirit of New Yorkers and truly the fabulous food. Ina, just for the record, I stood in the halal line, too. <laughs> I did. <laughs> That's great. And I just wanted to mention that there are photographs of many of these people. 
on my website. Yes, and I was going to mention as well, you can learn more about Food in the City and Ina's prose at inayaloff.com. It's I-N-A-Y-A-L-O-F.com. Ina, I would love to dine with you sometime, and I'm going to reach out next time I'm in New York, if you don't mind. I would love that. I would love that, too. And I hope you'll come back and share more stories. There's so so much wonderful to, uh, to, to document and to eat. Thank you. It was so much fun being with you, Jamie. It was my pleasure. Thank you for sharing your passion. As the delicious conversation continues, a must-read. It's called Food in the City. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Uh, We'll be right back. Delivering the world of food directly to your radio. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen here. Meredith Lee is a food and farming specialist who has been involved with cattle, poultry, swine, sheep, and goats for over the last 12 years. She has worked as a butcher, a chef, a teacher, a homesteader, all in search of realistic solutions for sustainable food. And she has written a book with the goal of helping food lovers understand that food is the most fundamental common denominator to our collective and individual quality of life. And there are a lot of factors that we must consider when we think about our food. At the center of the dietary storm is animal-based agriculture. Is the farm or factory uh, pasture raised? Did your chicken free range? Well, the Ethical Meat Handbook seeks to teach us that animals can be an optimal source of food fiber and environmental management. And Meredith Lee, the author of the Ethical Meat Handbook, is here to dish. And I'm so glad to have you. Hi, Meredith. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Yes, of course. Okay, could you please define ethical meat Because I think that you have definitely honed in on what we are going to see as a very important news topic and a topic of conversation in the food world, uh, a a very, you know, appropriate and necessary conversation um, in the months and years to come. Sure. Um, So ethical meat in the book is defined as uh, meat from an animal that enjoyed a good life, had a good death, a good butcher, and a good cook. And that sounds very succinct, but there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and that's the, the holistic focus of the book is looking at the entire supply chain and helping folks understand their role within that whole. I think it's a really interesting approach. You share in your introduction a range of scale when it comes to family farmers. It's what I call the Big Mac example because I've read your book front to back. Share, if you would this this idea of, of range of scale. And really, when we sit down to a steak, what we might not be uh, appreciating or rather taking for granted. Sure. I mean, it's, a, it's quite a complex thing to, to fit your head around. And I think, I think the way we generally think about the world in general and also about food is in a very compartmentalized, let's take it apart, look at all the pieces, <laughs> and yes. then try to understand it that way. But, but it's, it's something that we need to look, kind of zoom out from, take a more 300,000-foot view and understand just sort of the vast lattice of, 
you know, political, social, environmental, economic things that are happening when we choose what we choose to put on our plate. And so I guess I like to draw... I, I like to draw comparison between, um, I guess maybe what you're, you're talking about is the economic discussion yes. and the introduction. Yes. Yeah, so the Big Mac, as, and I quote, as you write, which normally retails for about $4, should really be selling for about 11 Right. And so there's a, lot of, there's a lot of reasons for that, one of them being farm subsidies. So the government um, pays. Farmers, I mean, in a nutshell, to take the risk out of the business right. of, of inherently risky business, right? <laughs> fence row to fence row cultivation of monoculture crops, also factory farming of meats. And so there have been some research showing that, you know, to actually raise animals, um, it, it actually costs a bit more than, than the farmers are able to make off of those animals. And the reason that backward economy works is because of those farm subsidies and also because Animals from factory farms are engaged along with the farmers in a vertically integrated economic system. So that means that a corporation owns many tiers along that supply chain. So they own, you know, they have a contract with a farmer. They own a a hatchery if it's chicken. They own um, the slaughterhouse. They own the distribution infrastructure. And so there's not, you know, a different guy trying to eke his profit out Mm -hmm. at every step along the ladder. Isn't that true? And and I think it's something that we need to wrap our heads around. I, the book is a wonderful read, I will tell you. I, just just the knowledge that I felt I gained from it that I believe is essential for all food lovers. We have in this country an extraordinary uh, concept and, and mind, it, mind you, some of it conscious and some of it uh, very unconscious of bang for your buck. You know, my husband's in the wine world, Meredith, and if you watch the process of um, of harvest and from vine to bottle, you would pay far more for that bottle of wine if you only knew what it took. But we're all looking for the most exceptional value for the best Pinot Noir that we can drink. And I really equate that same concept and premise to your definition of ethical meat and really understanding the process. I love that you talk about a concept of a diverse diet, real whole foods, and I would love for you to explain that. Sure. I mean, I think I'd like to just, I, um, I agree with your comment about the wine. I agree with that comment if you were making about about peanuts. You know, I mm. think that we're looking, we're, when we talk about food, we're talking about something that comes from nature, and that's a complex thing, and it's a difficult thing to manage. Yes. And so um, to see it as a, as a situation of bang for your buck or something that's very patent, simple, and shiny and packaged mm. is, man, it's, it's really something else where we've come to. Um, very and I think that the example of meat is, it's a great example of what's going on throughout the food system. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I love that analogy that you made because you can really apply the systems of holistic thinking and diverse thinking to pretty much any any part of the food system For and sure. kind of come out with a similar analysis. And I think that the diverse diet is is really sort of, it's like a corollary to that. It's like saying, okay, we look at the food system in a compartmentalized way and we also look at our diets in a compartmentalized way. Think about all the things that you do to determine what you're going to eat. You know, some of them might be health or 
um, economics or um, morals or, um, you know, whatever. There's a million things that, you know, taste sometimes doesn't even factor in because you're thinking about so many other things, water usage or omega-3 fatty acids or antioxidants. And it's like we're just like bouncing back and forth between all these things, but it's we're unable sometimes to step back and see how all these things affect one another. Right. It's a full circle. I mean, as, as much as you speak about ethical me and you've taught us in the book uh, really extraordinary uh, butchery concepts and how to look at organics, the numbers are staggering when I look at the cost comparisons in the book. Um, when you consider what you're putting in your body and where it came from, it is a far more philosophical and deeper discussion than I think we often lend to it. And it's really a wonderful eye-opening journey. Okay, we'll take a quick break. More with Meredith Lee and Ethical Meat right after this. Carnivores rejoice, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Meredith Lee is live with me, and we're talking about her new and controversial book release called Ethical Meat. We should really take the journey, though, next time, sitting over braised beef shank tacos, don't you think? Definitely. I love that. I would like that, too. Your recipes are so hearty and full of in-depth flavor. And I thought if you would just touch on um, beef shanks or a couple of your favorite cuts before I let you go, because this really is a wonderful way to, I think, um, explore new and different meats or cuts that are available and to try to incorporate them for an open-minded approach. Definitely. So one of the one of the things that we're dealing with in the meat industry is we have we've been pushed to embrace demand for rarer muscles. So we favor back meat, so loins, ribeyes, filet mignon, etc. But that's only a pretty marginal portion of the entire carcass. And most of the carcass favors slow, low cooking that prioritizes moisture as opposed to grilling. We have this huge grilling culture, but we could really stand to beef up our culinary repertoire yes. with smoking and braising and stuff like that. And so the recipes in the book are designed to focus on those lesser used muscles in the carcass of mm. beef, pork, lamb, and poultry to help folks understand. You know, everybody knows how to grill a ribeye, you know, but but understanding how to, to braise... Um, you know, or or poach or or smoke yes. meat is is becoming a bit lost. Oh, I agree. Wait, Meredith, pause there because I do. You have a few more minutes. Yeah. I'd like to continue our conversation when we come back. Meredith Lee is going to give you her best tips. I hope she is the author of the Ethical Meat Handbook, a complete home butchery, charcuterie, and cooking book for the conscious omnivore. She is Meredith Lee, and there is more fabulous food in your radio right after this.
This is a place for people who love to eat. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Eating consciously and diversely may be the most revolutionary and proactive steps we can take to ensure the resilience of our food system. And the Ethical Meat Handbook is sharing flavorful, healthy, and really insightful ideas so that you can eat responsibly and well. We are dishing with the author, Meredith Lee, on her Complete Home Butchery Charcuterie uh, Cookbook for the Conscious Omnivore. Meredith, we left off talking about beef shank, some of those lesser cuts gaining popularity that we are going to start incorporating into our repertoires. Um, So please pick up there. Some of the best methods for cooking these lesser cuts definitely, I believe, lend themselves to braising and lots of moisture and lots of bold flavor, lots of ingredients that really pack a punch. Definitely. Um, so another another thing I thought of when you when we were breaking is um, is neck neck meat is one of is one of the best things if you can get your hands on mm. it. I mean the neck does a lot of work. It holds up the head all day. It's responsible for the up and down action of grazing. So it's actually one of the most flavorful muscles uh, or group of muscles in the carcass of, of a lamb or a beef animal and or a turkey for that matter. Sorry? Oh, a turkey neck at Thanksgiving? Oh, oh, definitely. Oh, yes, that you put in the bottom of the roasting pan. I'm sorry, I got excited because I thought of Thanksgiving. That's okay, I love excitement. A turkey neck or extra necks from the butcher in the roasting pan when the turkey cooks. Uh, You know, from the drippings, from the turkey, long, slow roast. That is the best thing to eat standing up in the kitchen when everyone else sits down. That's right. (laughs) It really is. And your glass of wine. Yeah, of course. Yes. (laughs) So I think, yeah, so neck meat or shank meat and and really braising, you know, it can be quite complicated in sort of an Escoffier type way, but it can also be quite simple. If If you're in a rush and you have, say, a beef neck or a beef shank, I would say dot it with butter, throw in some celery or lovage, salt and pepper, red wine, you know, put it in um, a really low oven. You know, if you have time to, you know, to saute some aromatics, then that's great. You know, mm-hmm. if you have time to brown it a bit in, on the stovetop, that's great. But it, it responds really well to just putting it in a, in a casserole, surrounding it, you know, maybe one-third up with that red wine, putting in some, I love lovage, I'm obsessed with it, or fennel with beef or lamb, it's throwing nice it in there. Compliment. Some some type of you know, any other seasoning you you, you favor, um, and then covering it and putting it in a really low oven. And the trick is just don't take it out too soon. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest struggle I I find with people when they start braising. Patience. Patience. <laughs> yes. Right. I, and I so have it should to be agree. falling off the bone. Yes, and, and the and bone should fail. come out on its own, loosely, with the tip of your finger touching it. I mean, that's the beauty to a great braise to me, is if when you go to take the meat out of the casserole, out of the pot, out of the Dutch oven, it it should tend to fall off the spoon because it just doesn't have any... Uh, it doesn't have any weight to it anymore. It has this fall-apart, beautiful complexity to it. That's what makes a great braise. I think that you have written a book for the times, a book for the decade, a must read. So congratulations to you. Thank you so much. I really love that you're sharing your insight and inspiring all of us to be more conscious 
eaters and more conscious cooks because that is the responsibility we have to ourselves, to our families, to um, where we live, how we live, um, to, you know, I'm all about land of the free, home of the brave, to this great country of ours. Um, And it is a powerful and positive book for gastronomes to take a very hard look at our individual choices to increase our self-reliance. It is a great read. You should read it, really. It's called The Ethical Meat Handbook, and it is written by Meredith Lee, L-E-I-G-H. And you can learn more and grab a copy for weekend reading. And then to make, of course, braised beef shank tacos at theethicalmeathandbook.com. Meredith, really lovely to speak with you. Thank you for sharing your passion. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And so that brings us to the end of another hour of culinary inspiration. I hope I satisfied your appetite and that you'll tune in every Sunday for more delicious conversation. I'm always serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and I will leave you with my last bite. I love tart frozen yogurt, don't you? And I have a homemade version that will use up the summer bounty of any fruit. So let's say you have a big, huge container of overripe strawberries left from last weekend's celebratory July 4th event. Well, just place the strawberries, cut in half preferably, and uh, hold, or the tops cut off, on a silicone baking mat lined baking sheet or a cookie sheet for that matter and freeze them. Make sure that the strawberries aren't touching one another. And when you throw that sheet pan or cookie sheet in the freezer, make sure that it's laying flat. Now, once those strawberries are frozen and the overripe ones work great because they're full of flavor and juice, then you'll take them and lift them off the silicone baking mat and throw them into a Ziploc bag. They call that in the business IQF or individually quick frozen. So the strawberries don't freeze touching one another and you get this beautiful sweetness captured in your freezer. Now, once you're ready to make the tart strawberry frozen yogurt, you throw a couple cups of those frozen strawberries into the food processor with a couple tablespoons of sugar and a couple spoonfuls of plain Greek yogurt and you just Mix away. Let that food processor run until you have the ultimate textured, beautifully tart, summer sweet strawberry frozen yogurt. It will give you dessert in no time and it is so delicious. I'll post the recipe on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on my page at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll thank you for listening this hour, and I will hope to meet you here next Sunday in your radio. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well.